this is Once Upon a Crime in Hollywood, the Ronnie Chasen story. Just two weeks after Miss Chasen was shot to death, Beverly Hills Police had 43-year-old Harold Smith under surveillance and secured a warrant to search the apartment December 1st. Let's welcome back Anne Louise Bardock. She covered the chasing case closely for the Daily Beast. You can check out her website at bardockreports.com. Anne Louise, tell us about the Harvey apartment and what happened that night. The Harvey is kind of a sad, it's a sad residential facility, downtown L.A., um, rooms, m- many of the people are transient, uh, many people don't make it more than 30 days at a stay, uh, many of the people are part of the estimated 50,000 people who are regarded as homeless in Los Angeles. And the figure's even bigger today. Um, A few of the people I met who knew him and were there at the same time were kind of long-timers. I remember one man who um, seemed to know, know him quite well as much as anyone knew him had had was there you know for a full year and he said he was in and out and he said basically Harold uh, Smith's MO was to wait to get evicted and that's what he was doing um he he was already sent eviction papers to be thrown out of this place and he was just hoping to get through to December um he was on borrowed time, borrowed everything, and the police showed up, and he was, there's, when the Harvey apartments, it's an odd place. You walk in, it's definitely uh, cheerless, and there's a couple of stairs, and up on, as soon as you come in on the right, there's like a cashier cage, you know, where a cashier is behind there and where you pay up. You pay for your room or by the week, by the day, by the month, whatever it is. It's that kind of place. And as I understand it, the night that he was caught, the police came in. He was actually just hanging out down, sitting on the steps by the cashier cage area. Um, and the police wanted to speak to him, and he took out his thirty-eight, the same thirty-eight that they said was a ballistics match with the bullets um, that had killed Monty Chasen, put it to his head, and took his life. He was not going back to jail again. Los Angeles Police Department were also on the scene to investigate the suicide. Here's what LAPD Captain Kevin McClure had to say that night. The person that they were looking for showed up. They attempted to uh, talk to the suspect. Um, When they did, the suspect uh, uh, produced a handgun and there was a self-inflicted gunshot wound at that point in time. And the uh, suspect was pronounced at the scene. Smith wouldn't be identified until the next day, but neighbors from the Harvey Apartments where Smith lived said he was known as Harold. So who was he? 
And what was his connection to the Chasen murder? And Louise, what can you tell us about Harold Smith? Well, he had been living there on and off for a period of time. Um, Harold Smith was from New York City, uh, but had a, a long, troubled life and long, troubled drug career, long, troubled stretches in jails and prisons. Uh, this is a very sad story. He was a nice-looking man. He was a kind of light-skinned Af- African-American with kind of closely cropped hair who was an extraordinary bicyclist, like a, like probably could have been a champion cyclist. Um, so he had a kind of dual part to him. He had parts of him that were drug you know, take any drug he could get his hands on, his drugs of choice being methadrine and crank, and um, and being a great cyclist. And he had a whole collection of the best bicycles, all stolen, which he kept next to the Harvey um, uh, in near a dumpster. He kept them kind of locked up. And his favorite bike, the one bike, the bike, I think it was a maroon color, that the police said he was driving the night of the murder of Ronnie Chase, and he actually kept in his room. Miss Bardock, what do you know about his criminal history? Oh, boy. He just had a checkered, you know, from the go. Um, and there was some family. He did have a family. Uh, but as I recall, when he killed himself and the police took the body, and contacted whatever relations she had back in New York. At that time, there were no takers. There were no takers saying, oh, look, we want to get the body and give him a proper funeral. My sense of it at that time was that he was going to end up in the L.A. version of Potter's Field. And, you know, he he was in trouble from the go. Um, remember, every time somebody is caught doing a criminal act, you have to figure there were 10 or 20 other instances where they're not caught. You know, uh, police are spread so thin <laughs> that when you have a massive homeless population, many of whom are drug addicted and need to steal in order to support their habits, um, there's no way you're going to have adequate um, protection, which is, at the time this murder happened, there was kind of a a spike, a real crime wave going on. There had been a series of these snatch and grabs, you know, women just walking on the streets, say, of Beverly Hills or anywhere in L.A., and then people doing these car robberies, but typically going to the passenger's I mean, the driver's side uh, and, you know, putting the gun right at the the driver's head, you know, really scary. What's remarkable about this is for him to come on the passenger side, boy, really kind of shows a a desperate kind of character. And I think really does rule out that no pro would ever go to the passenger side. Regarding um, Harold Smith's criminal history, you know, and what we do know is he starts getting convicted. That's convicted, not arrested, of burglary in New York in 85. Within 
five years, get, he does some time, he gets out, he moves to California. Uh, he gets arrested for burglary again in 91. And he's arrested again in 94. And he's picked up again in 97. So you figure out what day of the week or any week that he's not doing a robbery, snatch and grab. And remember, many people don't report these things, particularly in Beverly Hills. I remember speaking to people who had been robbed, who lived in this area, and they would give me their account, but they would say, do not use my name. I didn't even call the police. That's how wary uh, people are um, about, they just don't want their names out there. So for to have this amount of arrests, charges, etc., it tells us that this is a guy who has a history. The thing that struck me when I went through some of the his records uh, that the Beverly Hills Police Department pointed out is that he he had a history of targeting women. Um, now here he's a strong guy. He, boy, if you can cycle ten miles a day as he did, you're you're strong, you're in good shape. You may be uh three sheets to the winds on methadrine, but you're you, you're moving. Um, is that he had a, another attempted robbery in, in 98, a few years before this one. And what struck me in several of these cases is they were kind of blonde women, well-dressed. He was He knew how to do the snatch and grab. He knew that if you wanted to get some money, you wanted to go, you went where the money is. So you may not have gone to the banks, but you went and you've, he knew the kind of women, how they dressed, how they looked, uh, where the money is. Now, when I wanted to say something interesting I, to me is when Ronnie Chasen told a good friend of hers who I happen to know, um, when she tells her friend that she just leased a black Mercedes coupe, her friend said to her, gee, that, you'll be a target, blonde woman and a black Mercedes. And that's true. If you're in the business of Har- Harold Smith, which is, you know, stealing your next drug fix, that might be what you're looking for, a black Mercedes with a blonde woman of a certain age with a certain certain amount of jewelry and designer clothes. And that was Ronnie Chasen. So they never have occurred to her that she would have had this kind of encounter on Sunset Boulevard of all places. But she definitely she definitely was the the, the type that Harold Smith had a history of pursuing. For potential victims getting their money, etc. I don't. Know, I'm not aware of any record of him actually committing murder. I think he was pretty much a burglar and a thief. But there, are, it's very possible that there are previous previous hits. Um, all in, it all appears to be to steal money, to buy drugs, to live. And by the way, I just wanted to point out, 
he was sentenced to 11 years. And he did. He did 10 years because he was sentenced in 98. He doesn't get out till 2007. That's a long stretch. So he does a nice long stretch. So this guy is in and out of jail, facilities, prisons. He's everywhere, state, county, city prisons, federal. He's he's a guy who is known incarceration most of his life. And he was probably hopelessly demoralized. And that's probably what went through his head when he saw the cops coming in. He had a drug habit. He had run out of money. Cops were coming. And he knew he's going back to jail. He was being evicted. And he was going to do cold turkey in a jail. And that's probably what he was thinking in those last moments when he saw police coming for him. Steve Katz, former America's Most Wanted producer. Did Smith's neighbor ever mention having knowledge of Smith's criminal history? Not um, to the specifics that we've talked about here. Um, He knew that Harold had a past and was a two-strike guy. Um, So he knew that, uh, you know, there was some desperation there. Um, One of the reasons, I think, that, uh, that prompted him to call was that he knew that Harold was dangerous. Even though he described him as the politest guy he'd ever met, he knew that he was dangerous and um, uh, he knew that he had a past. But I mean, they weren't bosom buddies. You know, they they didn't hang out. They were neighbors in this, you know, this rundown apartment building. So th- as much as you could know somebody who was your neighbor like that, uh, you know, He knew enough to be da- that, that he was dangerous. According to the LA Times, Beverly Hills detectives had information suggesting Smith would be in his apartment December 1st and had been under surveillance for some time. When Smith arrived and entered the lobby, he was approached by two Beverly Hills detectives. He was told to take his hands out of his pockets and refused before producing the 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver he used to shoot himself. Smith was pronounced dead at the scene. Here's more from Lieutenant Tony Lee of the Beverly Hills Police Department about Smith's suicide and how it's connected to Chasen's investigation. Our detectives were here to follow up and this person was a person of interest from the Chasen incident. And uh, that's all we have at this point. And as the captain uh, mentioned, uh, this person uh, shot himself. It was a self-inflicted gunshot wound, pronounced dead later on. And the uh, investigation is ongoing at this time. We did hear from some of Smith's neighbors, including Terry Lynn Gilpend, who lived on Smith's floor. Here's Terry Lynn speaking to CBS News' Ben Tracy after Smith's suicide. He was telling my husband, someone hired me. And, I, and I'm just getting a big payoff, and I'll be expecting $10,000 here in the next few days. He said, you know, that little nice lady driving that nice car? And he goes, that was me, that was me. Gilpin became a main source for media speculation about a murder for hire after she was quoted as saying she overheard Harold Smith 
telling her then husband, Brandon Harrison, that he killed Ronnie Chasen and that he was talking about receiving $10,000. But it was reported that Smith had won a large settlement for an unrelated lawsuit, which ended up being closer to $5,000 after lawyers' fees. The rap also quoted a police insider as saying that witness statements claiming Smith was expecting a $10,000 windfall were completely not credible. Let's go back to Anne Louise Bardock, who covered the case for the Daily Beast. Anne Louise, did you speak to any neighbors who corroborated the story of him bragging about receiving $10,000 for killing Miss Chasen? Uh, let me just say as a general note that the many of the residents of the Harvey apartments um, would not be in, entirely single-source reliable sources, if you get what I'm saying. And getting people to agree exactly what happened. Um, what I did hear is he had come into some money. Uh, what my memory of it was is that he had hired some ambulance attorney to file a lawsuit about something, some personal injury case, and had come into some money. Um, now, whether it was hundreds or thousands, I sort of remember that he w had complained about the lawyers taking all the money, a common complaint, and that in a New York minute, he had spent it all because he was a crack. He loved crack, and he loved crank. Crank is um, sort of like souped-up methadrine um, with God knows what else, and that the money was gone, and that one of uh, the residents said to me, he has to borrow money like a few days or later, and and the guy said to him, well, wait a minute, you want to borrow money for toilet paper? You just said you came into all this money, and it was gone. So that is the life of drug addicts. Um, I would also say that there were, aside from his drug addiction, and you're a drug addict for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was, um, you, there are all manner of emotional and mental problems. There's also damage. Uh, his drug of choice was speed, and speed causes literally physical brain damage. It erodes the synapses, affects memory, affects judgment, and all else. But like I said, everybody was in awe of his bicycling ability. So you had these like Ronnie Chasen, you had two two different sides of this uh, very sad creature, and then you had this incredibly random collision of two unlikely people. Smith had been evicted from his apartment six days after Chasen's murder and had asked the tipster to store some of his belongings in a box. The tipsters hold a Hollywood reporter, a Beverly Hills police detective placed Smith's belongings from the box on his bed and said, holy F, there's four empty shell casings. Remember, according to police, there were no shell casings found at the scene of Miss Chasen's murder. Another item they found was a bike belonging to Smith. 
The bike is significant because Harold Smith didn't drive. He was an avid biker and would reportedly travel long distances around Los Angeles. The tipster told America's Most Wanted that Smith came to his apartment 90 minutes after Ms. Chasen was shot. Let's bring back Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney, former deputy district attorney of Los Angeles County, and host of his own podcast, True Crime Daily Sidebar Podcast. Joshua, do you think it's possible Harold Smith could have biked all the way from Sunset Boulevard and Whittier Drive back to the Harvey apartment in an hour and a half? I mean, it's certainly possible, right? Um, The better question, I guess, is how probable would it be that he would be in that area um, not close to where he lived? Uh, We're talking several miles away. It's it's, uh, not an area that you would expect him to kind of be either walking or biking around. Um, You know, we talked about this previously, but it's it's a residential area off of the Sunset Strip. Um, So his ability to get back from the crime scene to his apartments within that time period is certainly a, a well-deserved question that I think the police um, l- needed to look into to answer. Um, could he have done it by bike? I think, sure. Could he have done it by foot or by public transport is, is perhaps a better question, given the idea that we there was some uh, evidence, at least, that he returned to the apartment without his bike. So that is... Something that's even more um, curious is that how would he make his way back without his bike? How how quickly could he do that? And why would he not uh, arise suspicion, pardon me, raise suspicion in that area of Beverly Hills, you know, a person that late at night making their way by foot, uh, perhaps in a highly agitated manner, um, uh, you know, soon after having committed a murder, perhaps. Um, these are all questions that I think added to the overall intrigue and curiosity surrounding the case and um, people who question why it seems as though Beverly Hills pointed all, all fingers at Smith. Speaking to The Hollywood Reporter in 2016, the tipster said at 11 a.m. the morning after Chasen's murder, Smith knocked on his door asking to borrow a dollar and told him he needed to get his bike in Beverly Hills. So how did Smith get back to the Harvey apartment the night of the murder fast enough to be knocking on the tipster's door 90 minutes later without his bike? Why would he leave his bike in Beverly Hills? Did he really boast? about being owed money for Ms. Chasen's murder? And why would Mr. Smith, a two-strike convict who had already done time for robbery attempts, murder someone in Beverly Hills, then shoot himself when confronted by the police? Steve, Joshua, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean... Listen, it, certainly a lot of the evidence um, surrounding this case fits the profile of Harold Smith. Um, uh, that you know he's a person who has taken part in robberies, and he's a person who does have a drug habit. And 
does seem to kind of fit what you would imagine Beverly Hills PD would believe to be kind of their ideal suspect um, at the time. But then there are uh, other questions that are unanswered that I think um, have added to why there's so much kind of conspiracy surrounding this case, the location of where it took place, how it seemed uh, to all to be a robbery gone bad, yet there's really no evidence of a robbery gone bad other than a shooting. Um, there was no property taken. Um, so all of these things, um, including the the person who was killed herself, Ronnie Chasen, I think add to people just asking more questions than they otherwise would if this were a robbery gone bad that had taken place in a different part of Los Angeles, which which happens all the time. Um, and so I think it's what you're dealing with is kind of this situation where it's a ideal suspect, yet a yet put into the circum surrounding circumstances that don't entirely fit that usual narrative that we're used to seeing. Um, and then, you know, you have to add to the tragedy of all of this that he took his own life. And so many of these questions will never be answered. And so you are left with a suspect that has never been convicted. And you've never had this tried in a, in a court of law where we could see all of the evidence presented against him that might answer a lot of these questions. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have a police department that was able to say case closed with a suspect who's now dead and can't answer any of the charges, which I think just further feeds into the, the conspiracy and intrigue that continues to haunt this case. One of the things that strikes me about this case in particular, but in oftentimes, is you hear people talk about questions where you hear people even years later now talk about theories of what happened. And it's loaded with phrases like, this could have happened, or isn't it possible that, and you could speculate, and, and Josh is a criminal defense lawyer, you, you know this well, you could speculate about everything involving a murder unless there's clear videotape showing the knife being plunged into the guy's chest and even in this day and age, that's not good enough to, to prove. People are going to raise questions. Many of the questions raised about this case are because of all the things Josh said. The answers haven't been presented in court. But the evidence is, is pretty, you know, convincing. Um, at the time this happened, I was asked a, a lot about this question. And, and I stand by the stuff that I said at the time, which is it, Hollywood is a place and I love it there, you know, my whole profession is based in Hollywood, but it's a place that, that makes its mint on imagination. And for something this terrible to happen so inexplicably, the simple answer of what happened, just a lot of people apply their imagination to it because they just found it so hard to believe that a, a simple, terrible guy down on his luck camped out at a corner that he knew some rich people would come by that he could rob and it just went bad. And like, it, that's what happened, I believe. And um, all the speculation, all the reason why we're still talking about the case today is because where it happened and who it happened to. Um, if it was Joan Smith in Des Moines and no knock against Des Moines, I love Des Moines, but if it happened in a street corner at Des Moines at three in the morning, no one would be talking about it. They would say, Oh, there was a carjacking that went bad. Oh, isn't that terrible? Um, and I'm I'm not being pejorative to anybody who's raising questions. You should raise questions. You never trust anybody. 
you know, as I said, unless you have the clear videotape showing the knife being plunged. And you should, questions are legitimate, absolutely. But I think in this case in particular, it's a combination of unbelievable that somebody that who traveled in those circles could be killed by somebody who traveled in those circles, which again, as Josh now, I think you know this too, um, happens every day. But it's the the application, I can't believe this happened to our friend in our business. There must be another explanation. It can't just be that a really rotten person killed her. And um, I, I think that that is the genesis of a lot of these questions. It's just the disbelief, um, you know, that that something like this could happen. I think some one of our friends was quoted as, you know, um, you can believe what you want, but ballistics don't lie. And you know, you just it, it's just hard to believe. And some people, instead of just saying, okay, I'll let it rest, continue to think there, there must be another explanation, but but there isn't. In our next episode, we'll examine how Beverly Hills Police pinned the murder on Harold Smith, more questions that arose about Smith's involvement in the crime, and why police said the murder was just a random act of violence.